Well, I think the, am I on? Somebody turn me on. Is that working? It's not working. Is that on? Doesn't sound like it's on. Nope. Can you hear me now? I don't mind. There we go. Okay, the only announcement that I'm aware of is that we're going to have our church Christmas dinner after the service on Sunday the 21st of December. Okay, Sunday the 21st of December, and then we have our men's prayer breakfast also that same weekend on December the 20th. How shall young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can make sure that you are in right relationship with God and ready to focus on the teaching of God's word and that you might be in... um, as you're in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, that this will be valuable for your spiritual growth and edification. Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for all the many blessings that you provide for us. We're thankful above all things for our salvation, that it is a salvation that is not dependent in any way upon who we are or what we do, but it's totally dependent upon your character and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we're thankful to understand that there is a plan and purpose for human history, that things are not just random, that it's not just chaotic events, but that even though at times it may seem that way, you are indeed overseeing the course of history and working out a plan and a purpose, the culmination of which will bring maximum glory to yourself, demonstrating that you and you alone are worthy to rule over your creation and that no creature can do so. Father, we pray for us as we continue this study that that God, the Holy Spirit, would use this to really impress upon us the importance of understanding the scope of Scripture and the plans and purposes laid out in Scripture and that we can understand the direction toward which history is moving in terms of the future millennial kingdom. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, in the last three lessons, this will be the fourth one, and hopefully I think this will wrap up the millennium tonight. We're looking at the millennial kingdom, or otherwise known as the messianic kingdom, and this is the last dispensation, the last age, it's both a dispensation and an age, that takes place in human history. Human history comes to an end at the end of the millennial kingdom. And so as we see in this chart, we have uh, the very last judgment that takes place at the great white throne judgment, which is described at the end of Revelation chapter 20, that in, wait a minute, I just realized something. I had a program crash here. Yes, I did. That was not the right. Okay, here we are. That was not the right slide. I knew something seemed screwy. Here we go. We have the millennial kingdom, and this is a fulfillment of all of God's plans and, I mean, promises from the Old Testament. We've looked at this chart each time looking at the promises that were made to Israel, specifically to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then later to uh, the Jewish people in relation to the land covenant, to David with the Davidic covenant, and then a new covenant that's revealed by Isaiah. These have not yet been fulfilled. They will be fulfilled only in the future at the millennial covenant, uh, in the millennial kingdom. We have the Abrahamic covenants. It's the foundation for these other covenants, promising to Israel land, seed, and blessing. The land covenant was expanded on by the, uh, I mean, the, the land promise was expanded on by the land covenant, which is not fulfilled until Israel's restored to the land at the end of the 
uh, tribulation period when the Messiah returns at the second coming. If you want to go ahead and open your Bible somewhere, open them to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37 in the first half of the chapter describes this restoration under a picture and an image of a skeleton skeleton being brought back to life. After the <clears throat> after Israel is restored to the land, in order for there to be a kingdom, there has to be a king. This is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and the king is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is fulfilled at, at the second coming. And then at that same time, the new covenant is enacted. The sacrifice that establishes the new covenant was took place at the cross. But the new covenant doesn't go into effect until you have Israel back in the land and you have the new spiritual condition. So we'll be looking at that some this evening. Now, last time I went through some characteristics related to the millennial kingdom, and I ended with the point that Israel will be united, reunited, the two king kingdoms, all 12 tribes will be reunited, and Jerusalem will be the center of the nation. This is what's described in Ezekiel chapter 37. Now, the first 14 verses of Ezekiel 37 focus on this restoration of the land under this image of the dry bones. This became a, a sort of an inspiration for a song that was popular back in the 50s, the ankle bone connected to the leg bone and so forth. And, but the picture here is of restoration. Now, this is important to understand context. And one of the reasons that I've learned that uh, it's important not only to understand doctrine, but you have to understand Scripture and you have to know how to read is because we get involved with conversations with people every now and then. And if you're a believer, this should be uh, something that is characteristic of your life. And every now and then, somebody comes and knocks on your door and they want to talk to you about what they believe. And usually this is somebody like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or somebody like that. One of my great disappointments was the one time I was at home when I was pastoring in Irving, and I had several house guests. House guests were at Harry Leaf, who at the time was a pastor of Grace Bible Church. He had just started Grace Bible Church here. You had, I had Harry Leaf with me. I had um, Tommy Ice with, with me, and I had Dave Hunt. Dave Hunt, some of you know who Dave Hunt is, wrote a number of books, including a couple of books on the cults. We were getting ready to go to a debate. Tommy and Dave were debating some Reconstructionists, and just about two minutes before we were headed out the door, there was a, the doorbell rang, and it was two Jehovah's Witnesses. What a missed opportunity. I would have just loved to have been able to invite them in and sit down with, with, with four major theologians like that, just, just ready to pounce on them. But you never know what's going to happen. First time I had an encounter with a Mormon, I was in college. And a friend of mine who uh, lived in Nacogdoches sort of got trapped by a couple of Mormons that came by and gave me a call and asked me if I could come over and, and help. And that was the first time I ever heard anything about what Mormons believe. And it's important to understand what these other groups believe so that you don't get taken in by their subtleties. They, they follow their father, the devil, and the serpent in the garden was the most subtle of all the creatures. And so it's very easy to get sucked into their interpretation of Scripture, especially at the time when uh, all I had ever read was the King James Version, and the King James Version is not the most readily accessible uh, version in, um, and when you're not speaking um, Elizabethan English. And so they go to this passage, not the dry bones part at the beginning, but they go to the section that begins in verse 15. And I just wanted to point this, this out. Now, context is really important. Context is king, as we know from studying Scripture. And the context is introduced in the first verse. The hand of the Lord came upon me, that's Ezekiel, and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. So there's the imagery of this barren valley just with scattered bones everywhere. And then he, God, caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? 
And I answered, O Lord God, you know. In other words, Lord, you know. Uh, I'm not, Ezekiel apparently isn't so sure what the object lesson was going to be at this point. And so God then instructed him to prophesy to these bones and to hear the word of the Lord. And so in verse 5 we read God saying, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. But that's what happens at the end of the process. At the beginning of the process, he starts by putting sinews on the bones, then flesh upon the bones, then skin, and then the last step is breath. So there's a process that takes place in the restoration of Israel. The pulling together of these bones and putting flesh on them is a depiction of the restoration of the Jewish people back to the land. And then the last thing that happens has to do with giving breathing life into those those bones, breathing life into Israel. That's the, the picture. And so... The context is talking about the restoration of Israel and the regeneration of Israel. So having understood that, we can then properly come to an understanding of what takes place in verse 15. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. So this is a second vision and it is a second oracle, and it's built upon the first one. And God says to Ezekiel, as for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then God said, take another stick and write on it, for Joseph the stick of Ephraim, and for all in the house of Israel, his companions. Now, if you don't know anything about Mormonism, Mormonism interprets these sticks in a distinctive manner. What do you do with these sticks? You write on them. Well, in the ancient world, sticks were at the core of a scroll, and this is their interpretation that these are two scrolls. The first scroll is related to Judah. The second scroll is related to Ephraim. Now, Ephraim, there are two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Menashe. Ephraim is usually, that name is usually attached at times to the northern kingdom. Now, what what Mormons believe is that they are the descendants of the ten lost tribes of Israel. That's the northern kingdom. That's Ephraim. So what they say is, see, you have your Bible. That's the stick or the scroll of Judah. And we have the Book of Mormon. That's the stick or the scroll of Ephraim. And you put them together, and so that's what we that's why we believe in the Book of Mormon. You have these two scrolls being put together. But that's not what the imagery is, and that's not what the context is. It's not talking about a scroll, and it's not talking about uh, anything related to Revelation. The context is about the restoration and reunification of the tribes of Israel. So what what we get when we read through the text, and we need to read through the text to get get all the context, is that you have Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom. And so Judah is represented by one stick. And then uh, the northern kingdom is represented by a second stick. And in the last part of verse 16, we read, For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions... So you see that's connecting it to the northern kingdom. And then God said to Ezekiel in verse 17, Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. This is the reunification of the northern and the southern kingdom of Israel. Verse 18, When the children of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by this? See, when you talk to somebody who's involved with the cult, they'll pull some passage out of context and and you'll just talk about that, but you don't pull out your Bible and read through the whole chapter or anything. So God is going to give an interpretation of this starting in verse 18. He tells Ezekiel, when your people ask, what does this mean? Say to them, verse 19, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Thus, then say to them, thus says the Lord, Surely I will take the children of Israel from where? From among the nations, wherever they have gone. 
and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land. See, there's the interpretation of the joining of the of the two sticks and making one stick. It's the reunification of the nation. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. And then skip down to verse 25. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwell, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, their children, children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. So that clearly in indicates that this reunification takes place at the time David is set over them as their prince. So that place is at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Now, when we look at this section of Ezekiel, we're getting into passages that talk about the, the restoration of Israel and the end of the, of the millennial kingdom. Following this passage talking about reunification of Israel, you have chapters 38 and 39 related to the Gog and Magog invasion of Israel. Now, I'm not going to get into that tonight. That takes place during the tribulation period, and we'll talk about that. I've covered that in other places. It's a difficult section to deal with because uh, you have probably four at least, maybe five different positions held by dispensationalists. Nobody can speak with absolute certainty, although they try, as to when this takes place. Some people place it at the end of the uh, church age, possibly, or in the interim period before the beginning of the tribulation period. Others, and that's a very popular view today, and if you've read Joel Rosenberg, who is a, 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 a Messianic Jew, popular fiction writer, suspense fiction, that kind of a thing, uh, he also has written some nonfiction related to biblical prophecy. A lot of people follow his material. Uh, he holds this position. Uh, several other people hold this position that you're familiar with. Arnold holds this position. Tommy Ice holds this position. Several other people. Tommy and I have argued about it for 30 years, and, we'll, and, and he will tell you at any moment that it's the one position about Scripture that he holds with the least amount of certainty. Uh, other people, for example, um, uh, Ed, Andy Wood over Sugarland Bible Church. I think Andy's got the best solution to put Ezekiel 39 in the first half and Ezekiel 40 in the second half. There are others like John Walbert who put this in the first part of the first half. There are others who put uh, this at the as a prelude, put both chapters as a prelude to the campaign of Armageddon at the end. There's a minority view that connects the mention of Gog and Magog here in chapter 39 with the mention of Gog and Magog in Revelation chapter 20 at the end, Satan's final rebellion against God. That's the view that has the least support and the least significance. And um, and so that, that view is usually a, a minority position. But the end of this, in talking about this is the that Israel is restored to the land, and that's re-emphasized starting in verse 21 of Ezekiel 39. God says, I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgments, which I have executed, my hand, which I have laid on them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. So it would seem that, that the Gog and Magog invasion, this campaign, clearly fits within the tribulation period, and I think that that the solution, uh, that, that part of it takes place early in the tribulation, part of it takes place at the end, solves more problems than, than it creates. In verse 25 of chapter, chapter 39, God says, Now I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my whole name, after they have borne their shame, all their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me when they dwelt safely in their own land, and no one made them afraid when I brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and I am hallowed in the sight of many nations. So this puts it at the end of the, of the tribulation period. And then we go into the next group of passages from Ezekiel 40 to 48, and this section focuses on the new temple, the new temple that is uh, 
um, the millennial temple that's constructed at that point. We'll come back to that in a minute. I just wanted to, since I was already in Ezekiel 37, I wanted to go through that. So we look at the characteristics of the millennial kingdom. We see that it's the first phase of two phases in the establishment of the kingdom of God. It's the intro phase. It's the last stage in, in on this earth. And then it concludes with the great white throne judgment. Then God destroys the present heavens and earth and creates a new heavens and earth. And then we go into eternity. But our eternal dwelling is always going to be upon the earth, not in heaven. Heaven is a temporary uh, abode for us between the rapture and the second coming. During the millennial kingdom, we're going to reign with Christ on the earth as priests. And then in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and new earth, we will live in the new Jerusalem, and that is located on the earth. So we don't have an eternal abode in heaven according to the scriptures. So phase one is that thousand-year reign on the earth, and then phase two is the eternal state. I pointed out last time that in terms of the purposes of the millennial kingdom, it's first of all to fulfill God's many promises to Israel that have not yet been fulfilled. Second, it demonstrates that only God can rule his creation. This is the core issue in the angelic conflict. Satan wanted to be like God and wanted to rule the creation, and God is demonstrating in each and every dispensation with different circumstances and different uh, different criterion that only God can rule, that Satan cannot rule at all. The fact that there's famine, wars, d- disease, all of these horrible things that go on is all the result of, of the fact that Satan cannot c- control uh, human history. It also demonstrates that sin and volition, not the environment that's the cause of failure. This is one of the most important aspects of the millennial kingdom. In the millennial kingdom, the children are born with sin natures, but there's a perfect environment in terms of government. There's there's a perfect education system. There's a perfect governing system. There's perfect uh, per- perfect economic situation so that everything is properly provided for. You can't blame the neighborhood. You can't blame the government. You can't blame the poverty. You can't blame the lack of assistance. You can't blame injustice because there's perfect justice on the earth. So it demonstrates that that the problem that we have in all of human history is not economics. It, it, this destroys the whole theory of Marxism. It destroys all the theories and philosophies related to socialism and related to all of these other uh, these human systems that destroy human volition and place the blame for problems on economics or education or some other social factor. It's sin and individual volition that is the problem. Third thing we see is the government. Talked about this the last time. Jesus Christ rules the earth, and we will live and reign with him, according to Revelation 20, verse 4, for a thousand years, and in verse 6, we are priests of God and of Christ and, and as part of that function. So Jesus reigns during the tribulation period as king from the throne of David in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and this is so important. Now, I want to look at a couple of passages just to reinforce what the Scripture teaches about the rule of Christ in the millennial kingdom. In Psalm 2, we have one of the great messianic psalms. And in Psalm 2, I talked about this last time, we have God making the statement, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now, in context, that king is the anointed one. The Hebrew word for anoint is Meshach, or when it's the noun is Mashiach, the anointed one. And so the term Messiah means the anointed one. So the king here is equated to God's Messiah. He rules, he's installed as king in Jerusalem on my holy hill of Zion. Now, those of you who just went to Israel, we know that there's a hill just to the, just to the, um, uh, southwest of the Temple Mount that's called Mount Zion. But the term Zion is applied 
specifically to a couple of different mountains. It's even applied to the Temple Mount in the Old Testament, and it's applied as a whole to Jerusalem. So here it's not talking about specifically that one hill in Jerusalem. It's talking about Jerusalem. This is another a way in which Jerusalem is described as the Mount as Mount Zion. So the Messiah is established as the king in Jerusalem, and we would interpret this literally, that this isn't just a figurative language. This is what the amillennialists and postmillennialists say, that, that Jesus is ruling from his throne. It's a spiritual kingdom, and he's ruling from, from heaven. But this clearly is to be understood in a literal sense that he is going to be installed as king in Jerusalem. And then in verse 9 of Psalm 2, you'll break them with a rod of iron. He's, this is indicated in um, Luke 1, 32 and 33. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. So as we go forward here, I want to look at a couple of additional passages. Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. This is a foundational passage in the Old Testament. I'm just putting these up on the screen for us. And there Isaiah says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now when you read your Bible, in the New Testament you'll see the phrase latter days or last days, and you have to distinguish between the latter days of Israel's dispensation and the latter days for the church age, because they're two different things. So you don't want to confuse the two. So this is talking about the latter days for Israel, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountain. So the Lord's house, the Hechal, is the temple, and it's going to be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. Now, it's interesting, when you go into Israel, I think a lot of people, or when you go into Jerusalem, a lot of people think, that the highest mountain that you see there is going to be the Temple Mount. Actually, the Temple Mount is the lowest. It's surrounded. It's, it's almost like it's in a valley, and it's surrounded by a lot of higher hills and mountains. The Mount of Olives is higher. Many others are, 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 are higher. And the Temple Mount is lower. But what we're told in Scripture is that in the Millennial Kingdom, at the end of the Tribulation, there's this earthquake, and you have this geological uplift that raises and enlarges the Temple Mount area, and this is and the Temple will be much much larger than what we have today. In fact, the the entire precinct, the Temple precinct, is approximately a mile squared. The temple itself sits in the center of that temple precinct area, but the priests live in that precinct area, and the Messiah rules from that precinct area and different things like that. So it's, there's a lot that's going on within that one square mile area. This is the mountain of the Lord's house. It's established above and exalted above the hills, which is what will take place at the end of the tribulation period when you have this uplift, and all the nations, that's and the Hebrew word there is goyim, the Gentiles, all the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. This is, relates to the spiritual life in the church age. People go to Jerusalem to worship from, from the Gentiles all over the world, and this is going to be a shift that's very different from the church age. The church age, we worship not at a central sanctuary. We worship in a local church, and as Jesus told the woman at the well, he prophesied that a time was going to come when they didn't worship at either that mountain, which was Mount Gerizim right there by, by uh, Sychar, nor in Jerusalem, but it, they will worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. Well, at this point, it's going to revert back to a temple worship. So people are going to be going from all over the world to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship the Lord, because the Lord is going to descend and indwell the temple there, just as he did in the Old Testament. And so he is going to live in the midst of sinners in a world that is still corrupt and sinful, though not as it is today. 
So people will say this is going to be standard. People will be making pilgrimage to Jerusalem over and over again as part of their spiritual life. To go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, he will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the Lord rules the world from Jerusalem. And then what's the characteristic of that rule? Verse 4, he shall judge between the nations. So he's the ultimate supreme court. The supreme court of heaven will be directly involved in solving the ultimate problems among the nations. He will rebuke many people. And another characteristic of the end times, they shall be, of the millennial kingdom rather, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is the result of having a unified reign under the Messiah. This is the only time we're going to have true world peace is when the Messiah reigns. So the characteristic of world peace or world peas, depending on which bumper sticker you're looking at, uh, is going to be the result of the messianic rule. To claim, to make these claims is to make a messianic claim. And this is what we have at the UN. Here is a statue on the left that is out in front of the UN building in New York. And then on the right you have a quotation from Isaiah 2.4, which is engraved above the entryway to the UN. That they, that, so the UN is specifically claiming to have a messianic role to bring world peace and to uh, do away with the weapons of war. So don't think that, that the UN is just politics. This isn't just politics. This is theology at work, and they are the ones who did this. This isn't uh, Christians saying, well, they're, they're trying to solve the world's problems apart from God. They are the ones that are making this claim that they have this messianic role. So don't ever think that, that we really live in a world as secularists hope that, that separate God from everyday affairs. It never happens. Okay, another passage related to the rule of, of the Messiah over Israel is Isaiah 42.1, where God says, Behold, my servant, a technical term for the Messiah, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. See, David will rule over Israel, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ who rules over all of the nations and will be the source of justice for the Gentiles. Now, another passage that relates to the characteristics of the millennial kingdom is in Isaiah 11, 6 through 8. And there we read, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Often people misquote this and say the lion will lie down with the lamb, but it's the wolf that will dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, not with the young goat in his tummy, but next to the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child will lead them. This clearly shows that certain aspects of the curse of sin are rolled back. That antagonism between the animals and humanity, which is stated in the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9, is no longer going to be in effect. In fact, what you're going to have is that this animosity is reversed, the hostility of the animals, and apparently uh, they're back to being gramnivorous. Remember, they were originally created as herbivores. They weren't carnivores. That's the result of the fall. So it says at the end of verse 7, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Now, this impacts a lot of different things. This impacts dental structure. It impacts the way their gastrointestinal system works. And the reason I always make that point is that when Adam sinned, it just didn't, didn't create a spiritual death problem for him. It reverberated throughout the geophysical nature of the universe so that the laws of the universe shifted, that, that at certain animals no longer functioned just as they had before. Now, it might have taken time for this to go into effect, but this deterioration aspect started immediately. And they began to change. So you didn't have, God didn't create Tyrannosaurus Rex as a carnivorous animal in the garden. That 
he becomes that after the fall. The lion is not carnivorous in the garden. He just a docile little pussycat. But after the fall, he's not that way anymore. And after the return of the Lord, this gets rolled back. So in verse 7, we read, The cow and the bear shall graze, the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. All of this is just uh, is stated in poetry to emphasize the fact that the things are going to be quite, quite different. Now, Micah gives us another picture of the millennial kingdom in Micah chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 4. There we read, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, what did I say about the term latter days? We're talking about latter days of Israel or latter days of the church age. It's the latter days of Israel. They have no understanding of the church in the Old Testament. So, uh, and this parallels Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, where it emphasizes the mountain of God's house. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. Many peoples, many nations will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. That's a, almost a direct uh, quote out of Isaiah. He'll judge between many peoples, and then the rest of it is a quote. It's identical to what we find in Isaiah 2, uh, 2 through 4. Then we come to um, just, just wrapping this up. We see that in terms of the general characteristic, it's a time of world peace, there's no war during that time. The nations are not in conflict. The uh, Arab-Israeli uh, conflict has ended, and God has brought judgment there. All of the other conflicts have ended, and the Lord Jesus Christ rules over the nations. But there are still nations, divine institution number four, which is government, and number five, which has to do with nations, is still in effect. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ, though, who rules over all of those things. We see that the curse from the uh, the curse on the environment is also rolled back. Uh, other passages like Isaiah 30 verses 23 and 24 and Isaiah 35:7 talk about the fact that there's going to be abundant um, abundant rainfall and prosperity. Isaiah 35:1 and 2 says. Um, the wilderness and wasteland will be glad for them. The desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose, so there'll be plenty of rainfall. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. We look at Isaiah 30, verses 23 and 24. He shall give rain for your seed, with which you sow the ground, and bread of the increase of the earth. It shall be fat and plentiful, and that day your cattle will feed in large pastures. Likewise, the oxen, the donkeys, that work the ground will eat cured fodder, which has been winnowed with the shovel and fan. And Isaiah 35, 7, the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. It's a very different environment. There won't be a Sahara desert. There won't be a Mojave desert. Uh, you won't have this. Every place will be well watered and lush on the earth. We see that... With this uh, increased uh, abundance, there's going to be prosperity and blessing for all. Passages like Jeremiah 31.2 says, They shall come and sing in the height of, Je- uh, of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil. And all of that depicts an abundance of, of, of everything that they need. They have an abundance of groceries. Uh, Ezekiel 34.25 out of 27 says the same thing. God says, I'll make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land. And they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will cause showers to come down in their season. There will be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the fields shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in the land and they shall know that I am their, I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. So this describes this incredible new environment, very different from anything that we've seen or experienced. Now, as part of this new kingdom, there's a new spiritual life. 
We think of the spiritual life of the church age in terms of what dynamic? What is the key feature in the spiritual life of the church age? It's God the Holy Spirit. We're dwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Well, first of all, we're baptized by God the Holy Spirit, which means that the power of the sin nature is broken. We're dwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and we are filled by the Holy Spirit with doctrine. We are to walk by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the, the prime agent of the Trinity who's working in our lives to bring spiritual maturity and spiritual growth into our lives. Without the Holy Spirit, there's no spiritual growth. They didn't have the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's very different dynamic. We can't imagine it. You can't put yourself back there because you have been freed from the power of the sin nature, and that power was broken at the instant of salvation. But in the Old Testament, that never happened. It didn't happen to David. It didn't happen to Jeremiah. It didn't happen to Daniel. It didn't happen to Joseph or Abraham or or Noah or any of the greats in the Old Testament. They never had that sin nature power broken. So it's a very different spiritual life. They don't have the Holy Spirit to teach them, to guide them, to lead them, to direct them. They didn't have a completed canon of Scripture. They did, however, have various uh, theophanies and Christophanies Christophanies in the Old Testament, which would uh, give them revelation. They had much grace and much provision from God and guidance but it was very different from the present church age, and God was accomplishing different purposes by giving them such a limitation on their spiritual life. We, too, have a limitation on our spiritual life. What's interesting when we get into the millennial kingdom is that there are features from the Old Testament that are reenacted. There's going to be a temple. There's going to be a temple that is in a physical temple that is indwelt and inhabited by the Lord God. And people will go to that geographical vicinity for instruction from God. That's very different from today. We've read other passages related to the Jews and the, in the new covenant that God puts a new law on their heart and it's no longer necessary for them to teach their neighbor. They have an almost direct knowledge of scripture and doctrine for the Jewish people. But the nations need to go to Jerusalem in order to have spiritual instruction. So there's going to be a a completely different spiritual life. There's also going to be the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, in a rich way that is not experienced today. This is one of the problems that people within the charismatic camp have is that they often go to millennium passages from the Old Testament to talk about the Holy Spirit and try to make that apply to today. And it's a wrong dispensation. So let's talk for a minute about the uh, spiritual life of the millennial kingdom. First of all, Jesus Christ is going to be on the earth. He's going to have residence on the earth, and he's going to be indwelling the temple in Jerusalem, the new millennial temple, and it becomes the physical center of worship for all in the world. Second thing that we learn is that the earth is going to be full of the knowledge of the Lord. In Isaiah 11:9, we read, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Here's a picture of artist picture of what the future millennial kingdom will our millennial temple will look like. Okay, the Isaiah 11:9 says that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. So everybody's going to know about the Lord. Nobody's going to have any excuse. It's not just going to be uh, it's not just going to be a a general revelation. It's going to be a a verbal and an, a visual revelation of God. We also see that Israel finally fulfills her national purpose that God set forth in the Old Testament and when he called her to be a priest nation. This is described in Isaiah 2, uh, 2 and 3, which we've already read, where Israel functions as a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests to the rest of the world. And in terms of the the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, the miraculous demonstrations through the power of the Holy Spirit will be common. This will be standard. It's not ecstatics. 
It never has been ecstatics. Ecstatics was always a kind of emotional revolt that was evident in the idolatry of the uh, pagan religions and of the heathen religions. Somebody sent me a picture today of a great Christmas card. I wish I could actually print these out and send them to a few people. On the, as you look at the Christmas card on the outside cover, there's a picture of a beautiful scene, mountains in the background and a lake in the foreground and, and two deer. It's just a great picture of, of nation. And, and it says, uh, hope you have a, a happy, non-denominational, non-religious holiday. And you open it up and on the inside it says, you heathen. So everybody will know about the Lord. Everybody will be aware of the Lord, and that won't be quite the case, not till you get further into the Millennial Kingdom. Okay, so all throughout the the Millennial Kingdom, there are these manifestations of the Holy Spirit. So here you have a, a situation, unlike the church age, where you had certain miraculous gifts and sign gifts in the early part of the church age. In the Old Testament period, you had miraculous things that happened, they primarily occurred in two or three periods of time in the Old Testament. They weren't normative, though, but they did happen on occasion. You had the miracles related to the Exodus event. You had the miracles related to the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And then you had a few other miracles sprinkled here and there in the the Old Testament. But it wasn't the normal experience of every believer. But it becomes the normal experience of every believer in the, in the church age. Isaiah 32.15 says, Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. So somehow there's a relation between this outpouring of the Holy Spirit and economic prosperity. In Isaiah 44.3 we read, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty, and floods on the dry ground. And the picture here is not just someone who's physically thirsty or physically dry, but they are spiritually thirsty and spiritually barren. And God says, I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. So all of Israel benefits from this massive, this effusive outpouring of God the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel thirty-nine twenty-nine. God says, I will not... Hide my face from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel. That's related to the establishment of the new covenant. And then we come to the most well-known passage from the Old Testament in Joel 2, 28 to 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Now, some people say, well, that, that's like ecstatics, but that's not. It never was in the Old Testament. Joseph saw dreams. He had dreams. God is communicating to Joseph or to Pharaoh in a dream, communicating to, uh, and Joseph had dreams earlier. He's communicating. It's rational content. It's just occurring while the person was asleep. So Joseph is a young man, is having these dreams. Pharaoh later has dreams. They, they have specific meaning. They, they can't just mean anything. Uh, pr- prophecy, seeing visions. Visions what occurs when a person is awake rather than asleep. So uh, God pours out, out a different environment for the Holy Spirit during this time. This revelatory. And it occurs, Joel 2.29, also my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So it's a totally different environment in relation to the Holy Spirit. Now, we have this dimension of the Holy Spirit, but then there's also a ritual reality in the, in the millennial kingdom that's, that's similar to the Old Testament temple, but it's different. In fact, there are a number of differences between the Levitical offerings and the offerings that are described in Ezekiel 40 to 48, there's some different qualifications for, for priests uh, and who priests marry in the in Levit- in Leviticus as well as in uh, Ezekiel. So there are differences there. The temple and the description of the temple is, is very much, much different. 
what we see is that there will be this new temple, the fourth temple, constructed on uh, on the temple mount, the new temple mount that comes up at the end of the tribulation period. We know that there have been there have been uh, basically four temples. The first temple is Solomon's temple, which was built in approximately 970 B.C. and was destroyed in 586. Then there's the second temple, which really functioned in two parts. You had Zerubbabel's temple, which was fairly modest, which is rebuilt in approximately 516 B.C., and this exists until it is destroyed in 70. Starting in about uh, 24 B.C., Herod began a massive architectural project to rebuild the temple and to make it uh, one of the greatest architectural marvels in the ancient world. And he just, the, 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 the architecture of this and the massive rebuilding, because the temple was going to be so heavy, they had to build this huge platform around Mount Moriah that, that would be reinforced uh, with these huge stones that comprise this wall. In fact, there's one place where you can go down along the western wall and into tunnels at the base, and there are stones that they have measured that weigh over 500 tons that they moved into that location, and they fit perfectly, one on top of another. And all of this was designed to hold the weight and the pressure from all of the dirt that they were putting up on the Temple Mount on which the new temple would sit. Now, why do we not call that a third temple? We don't call it a third temple because the, sa- the daily sacrifices never stopped. And so it's considered phase two of the, of the third temple. And so this is the second temple, the Zerubbabel temple, then the Herod's temple. The third temple is the apostate temple. That's the temple that's built during the tribulation period. Rather than looking back at the beginning of the tribulation, rather than looking back and accepting Jesus as Messiah, uh, Jews will build another temple on the Temple Mount, and this is the temple that the Antichrist desecrates halfway through the tribulation period. So that's the third third temple. And then the fourth temple is the greatest of all the temples. That's the one that's described in Ezekiel 40 to 48. Now there's a huge amount of detail given in Ezekiel. There are 318 precise measurements given in the description of the temple starting in chapter 40. This is not some idealized temple. It's not just some some uh, nebulous temple that's in the heavens, but it, it, and the language that's used is the same kind of language that's used in Exodus when God was giving instructions to Moses to build the tabernacle and the same kind of language and instruction given uh, to Solomon. There's, there's specificity in exactly how uh, the, the temple was to, be, uh, was to be built. And so not only do, do, is that described, but a new priesthood is described. It's not going to be the whole of the Levitical priests anymore, and because of the, uh, the the apostasy of the house of Eli. We're going to learn about that when we study First Samuel, when I get back from Kiev. But the, because of the apostasy of the house of Eli, the descendants of Eli were uh, prohibited from uh, continuing as high priests, and so it reverted to another line from Aaron, and that goes through Zadok, who became the high priest during the time of Solomon. And so he is, uh, it's the Zadokite priesthood that is going to be uh, brought back into prominence during the time uh, of the millennial kingdom. But the thing that probably uh, bothers more people than anything else is the fact that there's a restoration of the sacrificial system during the millennial kingdom. And this causes a problem for a lot of uh, Christians because they think that that somehow doesn't this negate what Christ did on the cross? Christ is the final sacrifice. Why then would there be a return to sacrifices? And let me help you understand this. First of all, there's a return to sacrifices because not only does Ezekiel talk about this, but uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah also predict this, that there will be sacrifices in the Messianic kingdom. 
But the, the sacrifices in the Messianic kingdom have a different function than those under the Levitical system. Now, one way in which dispensational uh, theologians have tried to explain this in the past has been to say that they are memorial sacrifices. But that doesn't really fit, uh, especially with the language of Ezekiel. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 20, you might want to underline this, God is giving instructions, and in 43.20, God says, you shall take some of the blood, this is in relation to a to the sacrifice that has taken place. You, you will take a young bull, verse 19, for a sin offering to the priest. Now, wait a minute. I thought Christ was the sin offering. Well, we have to understand what the issue is in terms of the offerings. We'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, you'll take a young bull for a sin offering to the priests, the Levites who are of the seed of Zadok, who approach me to minister to me. You shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar. So there's going to be an animal sacrifice. And you will put its blood on the horns of the altar. And thus you shall what? Cleanse it and make atonement for it. Now, what is this all about? Well, we have to understand a few things about, about the terminology. First of all, we have to understand something about the word translated atone. It's the word kafar. And many people for a long time were taught that the meaning of the word kafar was to cover. And that's not exactly correct. The meaning of the word kafar has to do with cleansing. You can go through numerous passages like the one we have here where you see a parallelism between atonement and cleansing. You make atonement to provide cleansing, not justification. So the word kafar was often identified in the past with an act of propitiation. But who is propitiated by a sacrifice? This is a basic question. Salvation 101. Who gets propitiated? Who gets satisfied? God. Propitiation is God word. Kafar never takes place toward God. Kafar takes place towards inanimate objects or people, not God. So God is not atoned. People are cleansed, and that's the main picture here. And in Ezekiel 43:26, we read, Seven days I shall make atonement for the altar and purify it and consecrate it. So what we see is that the purpose for, for kafar is to bring about cleansing, spiritual cleansing and purification. So let's stop a minute and come to understand a basic category. There's a difference between real cleansing and ritual cleansing. Let me give you an example. David's a shepherd, and he's out with the sheep out south of Bethlehem in the field of the shepherds, and he does something. He has mental attitude sins of, uh, of, of lust, which is easy to imagine with David, and or he's angry in some way, but he commits sin. Now, does that mean that David has to drop everything and run all the way to Jerusalem, which is about 15 miles, and confess his sin by bringing a sacrifice and slitting the throat of the lamb and then turn around and run all the way back? He probably won't get back before he has to turn around and run all the way back to Jerusalem to slit another lamb's throat. He's going to be running back and forth all day long if slitting the lamb's throat and bringing that sacrifice is what is necessary for him to confess his sins. Let me suggest that what goes on is in in terms of David's personal life, when he sins, he confesses that sin to God and he is forgiven in terms of real cleansing. But the next time he wants to worship God in the temple, he has to be ritually cleansed. And so when he goes to the temple at the end of the week on Shabbat, he's going to bring a sacrifice for ritual cleansing for the sin that he's already forgiven for that took place early. So you have real forgiveness and you have ritual cleansing. And it's important to maintain that distinction because the, as Hebrews tells us, the blood of the bulls and the goats could not take away sin. 
It didn't provide uh, real cleansing from sin. It's, it was a temporary uh, withholding of the judgment of God. And when you come into the temple, the temple had to be sanctified. And sin could not come into the temple, or uncleanness could not come into the temple, and so there had to be, be cleansing. So the main idea in the sacrifices had to do with ritual cleansing and ritual purification. So it's not saying anything about, or it's not addressing the issue of Christ's payment for sin. The atoning sacrifices, the sacrifices of the lambs and the, and the bulls and the goats, did not bring about forgiveness of sin in that sense. It brought about cleansing from sin. And so there was that, that was important. Now, as we look in, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel goes on to say in Ezekiel 45, 15, 17, and 20, one lamb shall be given from a flock of 200 from the rich pastures of Israel. These shall be for grain offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings to make atonement for them. We should translate that to make cleansing for them. Translating it as atonement. The word atonement is a, is a, uh, English word that was coined to translate this concept from the English phrase at one met, which really focuses more on reconciliation. The idea of at one met, and then that word was compressed and it became atonement. But there's really no word in Greek or Hebrew for atonement. In fact, the, if you, you can do a word search, you're not going to find the word atonement in your, in your New Testament at all. So it's really better to translate this cleansing or for purification. That's the purpose for these, these sacrifices. Uh, now what happens is, to understand this, and we're running out of time already, is that the atonement is necessary in the millennial kingdom for the same reason that this is ne- was necessary in the Old Testament. In Exodus 40, the Shekinah, the dwelling presence of God, descended upon the tabernacle. A holy, righteous God is living amongst, his, amongst sinful people in a sinful environment. He's... And it, because of that, because of the presence of sinful people, the, the tabernacle itself, the furniture in the tabernacle, and the people who are coming to worship are going to be, um, are, are going to be rendered unclean. Now, uncleanness is a category in the Old Testament that's not necessarily related to sin. Sin can make you ceremonially unclean, but other things that are not sin can also render you ceremonially unclean. For example, if uh, at, at childbirth a woman gives birth to a child, then she is going to be ceremonially unclean for a week, but she's committed no sin. When if you are if you touch a dead body, and if you were a tanner. This was a, a problem with your particular profession. Then when you touched a corpse, you would be rendered ceremonially unclean. If you were preparing the body for burial, you would be ceremonially unclean. But you haven't committed any sins. There's nothing immoral about what you're doing. And there were many other things that are listed in Leviticus that talk about, that, that make a person ceremonially unclean. Now, Theologians have argued a lot over what these things have in common. And as I read the literature, the closest that I've ever seen uh, come to this is somebody said, well, it seems like it has to do with life and death. Hello? Every one of these things has something to do with the curse of sin. A woman gives birth. There's nothing immoral or sinful about that. But in the curse in Genesis 3, her pain is going to be increased in childbirth because of sin. So this has to do with a, a situation reminiscent of the curse. You can't eat certain kinds of food because those animals eat dead things. Death is the penalty for sin. So what runs the thread that runs through all of these different things that render a person unclean, certain diseases, uh, leprosy, for as a matter of fact, certain other things, is that they are related to the curse of sin. So there has to be cleansing. 
And even if objects in the temple, if somebody who is ceremonially unclean touches uh, furniture in the in the uh, tabernacle of the temple, then that object is now ceremonially unclean and it needs to be sanctified. It, and it's sanctified by the application of the blood. So when we look at this, we understand that the the concept of these millennial sacrifices has to do with the fact that a holy God once again is living in the midst of sinful people. He's living in a world that is fallen, and at the beginning of the construction of the millennial tabernacle, the altar and all of the furniture has to be cleansed. Uh, three out of the five uses of the verb for uh, related to atonement, uh, keep, which is keep, the, the, uh, the noun is kafar, the, the main verb, the root verb, is, is keep, K-I-P, that three of the five uses of that root in Ezekiel 40 to 48 relate to furniture, to inanimate objects, not to persons. And so what this tells us is that the f- purpose and function is ceremonial. It has to do with ritual purity in the worship, in the ritual worship of God in the tabernacle or in the millennial temple. Well, I'll come back. I have a few more things to say about that before we wrap up our study on the uh, spiritual life of the of the millennium, and we'll do that next Tuesday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon these things, to be reminded of your plan and your purpose, and above all, to be reminded of the, the, the fact that sin permeates everything. And so the, the, the illustration that we have from both the Old Testament tabernacle and temple and the millennial temple is the, the way sin permeates and corrupts everything and the need for uh, ceremonial cleansing on the basis of a blood sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice, where a life is taken uh, in order to provide that that cleansing from sin. Father, we know that that life that was taken for our cleansing from sin was the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and that he paid that penalty for us willingly that we might have eternal life by simply having faith in him. Father, we pray you'll challenge us with what we're learning in this study. And tonight we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.